What is love? What is love? What is love? I do want us to think about that this morning. What is love? It could be the fluffy, feel-good, sappy message on that Hallmark card. That could be love. Love could be something happening only in our brain, defined through neurobiology, measured in an observation lab. Love could be merely a reflex that evolved from our need to survive. Uh, Love could simply be hormones firing. I think here at the outset, we can all agree that love is a very powerful emotion. And very powerful actions are driven by love. Does it matter what you believe about love? What you believe about love will be one of the greatest predictors of your success in having a satisfied and fulfilled life. I think we can all say that, yes, what we believe about love matters. So there's going to be two perspectives of love that come out in this next uh, edition of our story here in 2 Samuel. And if you're here for the first time, and again, this morning, thank you so much for coming. And you can catch up on our previous messages. They're all on video online. But we're walking through the book of 2 Samuel. It primarily tells the story of King David. He was the king of Israel around 1,000 years before Christ. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in chapter 13. And for context, last Sunday... Pastor Rich showed us how God enters into the ugly messes that we make. We were blown away with the extent of both David's sins as well as God's forgiveness, a surprising forgiveness. And Rich contended that David's life itself is a picture of the amazing grace of God. And I think think he proved that point very well. And even as Nick said this morning, as believers in Jesus, we can be secure in our identity as sons and daughters of God. But at the same time, this section reveals a really important reality. That while our position with God is secure, there are consequences to our decisions that God does not always remove. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. It's page 263, if you want to use the Pew Bible, in front of you. This was part of Nathan's speech to David. And in chapter 12, verse 10, he said this. He said, now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to be your own. What happens in this next part of our story, this ominous prophecy begins to unfold. And in its fulfillment, there's two things I hope that we'll be able to observe this morning. One, it speaks to a profound cultural movement that we find ourselves in right now, today. And then secondly, 
I think we're going to find a surprising love, a kind of love that catches us off guard, a kind of love that earth finds strange. So let's pray. And, and uh, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Father, this morning I trust as we come into your presence, I trust that you've already spoken, Father. You spoke through Nick. You spoke through Christina. You spoke through our musicians. You spoke through Rich as he uh, sought to mobilize us around service, around sharing Christ with our community. And we trust, Father, that you're going to continue to speak as we look at a really challenging part of the scriptural story. And I pray that we could do so honestly and courageously and humbly as well. Father, guide us, we pray. And if there's anything that might hinder us, anything that might keep us from focusing, anything that might keep us from hearing this morning, I pray that you would remove that so that we can hear and grow and learn together as a community and be more of who Jesus made us to be, be more of Jesus to um, our neighbors, to the people we work and love and play alongside. Through Christ, for his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so you can turn the page, or actually, yeah, turn the page, and again, I'm going to walk through most of chapter 13, I think all of it actually, and so there will not be slides behind me. And uh, so I want to encourage you to, to use the Bible there in front of you. Use a device. That's okay. And it'll be helpful to you. We're going to be reading from mostly from the English Standard Version, if you want to look it up on your device. Okay? All right. So we're going to walk through this chapter and then ask what makes it relevant. Verse 1, chapter 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her. Now right away remember that over and against God's plan, David had multiple wives. Okay? That means there are multiple lines, family lines in his family tree, so to speak. So Tamar is a half-sister of Amnon. Amnon is David's oldest son. Absalom is likely the second oldest. We find a list earlier, but the, act, the, 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 the real second son is never heard from again. And it may be that he died before he reached adulthood. So it seems to make sense that Amnon is the oldest, Absalom is the second oldest. Now that birth order is really important to understand the story because remember that in the ancient world there was a right way of succession to the throne and that was the oldest son and if not the oldest son, the next son. Well, Amnon is beside himself. He couldn't do anything but think of Tamar. He was obsessed. It felt like and it looked like and it tasted like real love to him. He was love sick, literally. And apparently, she had some form of protection, perhaps by a royal guard. But the narrator clues us off here. In the beginning, 
that not all of Amnon's intentions are good. He wants something he cannot have. Desire is getting the best of him and driving him. And into this scenario steps a friend, a friend by the name of Jonadab. Look at the next verse. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. Now, crafty here is not good. This is not crafty like being good at making crafty stuff. <laughs> Jonadab is very intelligent. He has insight about people. He's even wise in one sense of that word, but he lacks character. Uh, friends, those are people to stay away from. They are dangerous individuals. And he helps Amnon scheme a plan. Look at verse 4. And he said to him, Jonadab said to Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard this morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat. And prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon pretended to be ill. Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food to him. Now, by the way, if you are struggling with sexual sin, do not surround yourself with friends like this. He's a terrible friend. And it begs to think what would have happened in this whole story if a spiritually minded, a good friend, would have been there. The Hebrew word cakes is similar to the word heart, so it may have been thought of as food for the sick. Amnon is asking for a personal Nurse, it never enters David's mind that Amnon would deceive him. Look at the next verse. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. Again, this is away from those who could protect her. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. Her tenderness and her service have made her vulnerable to him. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Now, this is the part of the movie where the music turns dissonant. It turns discordant. This is the part of the movie when you begin to feel your blood pressure rise. It's got your attention. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made, brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. Amnon has set his trap. But Tamar is a brave gal. She's a brave gal, and she is not a willing participant. Incest was strictly forbidden by the Le Levitical law, and her response indicates that 
she was aware of that. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. To violate means to subjugate. It means to humiliate. It means to disgrace. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools of Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now this may have been an escape plan on her part. Or perhaps the king would bend the rules for his oldest son. Not certain. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her, or in some versions, he raped her, and he lay with her. Look at verse 15. What happens to Amnon's love? Then Amnon hated her with great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Why does Amnon hate her? Well, I think he looks in her face and he sees a reflection of his own twisted depravity, what he has become, and he projects that on to her. And he has come close, he has come to the realization that she withheld the one thing that she could freely give, and she has chosen not to give it. But she said to him, next verse, but she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head. She went to that fire. The fire that would have been burning in that room. Hot ashes. Put her on her head. Tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. I just would like you to let this tragic picture soak in. Just let the picture soak in. In a shame and honor culture like this one, the worst thing that can happen to you is to be disgraced. She bears a terrible mark upon her life that cannot be removed. She is an unwanted woman, everything lost in a few moments of sexual lust and power. She knows no one will want her. If there was a previous engagement in marriage, which that very well could have been the case, that was, that was now shattered. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom, so now Absalom enters back into the scene. Absalom says to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? A little curious as to why he was able to pin that. We don't know. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is... Your brother, do not take this to heart. Good luck with that. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all of these things, he was very angry. Some versions say furious. 
But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. This word desolate is a vivid word. It means to be deserted of people and in state of bleak and dismal emptiness. Maybe it would be easier to keep things quiet, Absalom advises. Don't take it to your heart, sister, yet he himself will definitely take it into his heart. David, as I said, was very angry, yet he does nothing. He does nothing. As a father, David has responsibility to protect his daughter as the highest legal uh, representative of the land. He has the, he has the authority and he has the, the, uh, the, the, the commission, the responsibility to serve justice. And we have seen him act quickly in the past towards wrongdoings. For example, like the killing of the individual that, uh, the execution of the individual that killed Saul. But David does nothing. David had committed his own sexual sin, and now sadly, the sin is passed on to the next generation. It is repeated. It is repeated by Amnon. Now, the author here, Dale Roger Davis pointed this out, the author here, who generally, in, through First and Second Samuel, tells his story around events, he takes intentional time here to give Tamar a voice. The author gives Tamar a voice. And the author, inspired by God, wants us to pay attention to her pain. Here, he takes the time, and not just narrating events, but he takes the time to paint a picture of the violence that has happened to her and her utter helplessness to stop it. What terror she must have felt when Amnon sent everyone out of that room. She was a prisoner in that room to his own lusts and desires, out-of-control desires. The author, inspired by God, wants us to see not only the facts of sexual sin, but to feel what it does. Of course, to Amnon, Tamar was not a human being made in the image of God, a woman with unique and individual gifts, with dreams and hopes. She was but an object of his pleasure. Now, let me turn, if I could, to our own culture. This is a terrible problem in our own culture, the objectification of women. Rape is on one end of that spectrum, but on the other end, there are far more subtle ways that our culture objectifies women in media and in music and all over popular culture. I've often, I've wondered what would happen if someone from outer space came to our culture and went to our sporting events or went to uh, just took in media or listened to the lyrics of our song, <laughs> I wonder what they would think about the way we see and view women. I think they would come to some fairly quick conclusions. Our culture is so over-sexualized. We insist on the right 
to have sex whenever, wherever, with whomever, and with, ever, and with how many we want. We demand it. We idolize it. And I believe that we can say, I think that we can say objectively that throughout history, that when a culture elevates sexuality to an idol-like status, do you know who suffers the most when that happens? It is the most vulnerable who suffer the greatest. It is women who suffer. It is children it is suffer. And indeed, it is the unborn, the preborn, that suffer. This is a very strange love to heaven. <laughs> it's a very strange love to heaven. You know, our culture right now is in the middle of a very profound cultural moment. That moment has been brought on by courageous women telling their stories of people in authority, people in power, using their positions to gain sexual advantage. And no institution in America has remained outside this flood of exposure and judgment. Media, the corporate world, the sports world, universities, and yes, indeed, the church as well. Could I or could we endorse everything in the Me Too movement? Honestly, I don't know enough about it to say anything definitively in that regard. But I do think there are things that we can learn in this moment. This is a moment, for example, for the church to say, and a moment, by the way, not just for the church, but for how about right here? <laughs> how about right here in our own small groups, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods? Like, how about right here in this church? This is a moment to make sure that we are valuing every woman in this room in the same way that Jesus valued women. To approach them as individuals loved and created by God and to regard them as co-heirs of life, co-heirs of the life of grace, as Peter put it. While physical appearance and beauty is an aspect of every woman's life, it does not define them. And for Christians, seeing from God's vantage point, when we view our, our fellow friends, our female, our, our women friends, we ought to recognize the whole person, intellect, gifts, talents, aspirations, and dreams. This will run against our culture's drift to objectify women. God calls it to us. Many women have been denied this Many women have been denied this, and they grieve over it, they mourn over it, and they long for it. Secondly, another uh, lesson is that if you are in a position of authority, you do have the weight of responsibility. This is how one Christian counselor put it. She said, it is always the responsibility of the person with the power to maintain the integrity of the relationship. Always. This is a sobering thing, isn't it, for any of us who are in positions of authority, isn't it? It's a very, very sobering reality. I like what Andy Gray, he's a colleague of ours, another 
pastor in our family of churches, and Andy just expanded this out a little bit, this statement. Andy said this, that in any relationship, both individuals have a responsibility to respond to God and to each other in a way that will maintain the integrity of the relationship. The goal is to always speak and act honorably in Christ's likeness toward one another. However, the person who has the power in a relationship bears the critical and essential responsibility to preserve the integrity of that relationship by maintaining appropriate boundaries. So this is a moment for all of us who are in positions of authority, bosses, teachers, coaches, doctors, and pastors, to be careful how we use that influence. And finally, this is a moment, church, and this ought to be one of the best, actually it is, if it functions well, this is the best place for this to occur. The church ought to be the place where people are able to safely tell their stories. Amen? Amen to that. It is a way that we can help others bear their burdens, as Paul said in Galatians. And indeed here, I've been focusing on, wi- on women, and the stats do back that up. One out of every six women in their lifetime will be raped. Um, nine out of ten rapes do happen to women. And yet we all know that men also, and boys, can also be victims of sexual abuse. And a church ought to be a place where these stories can be told, where both the one who is hurt and sometimes as well the perpetrator can find forgiveness and find healing and find hope. I mean, nobody else can do that like us, friends. Nobody else. The Christian church is a community where people should feel safe to be open. And when a person opens up, and if you are invited into that holy place, that sacred space, then we as a church must be ready to be fully engaged. We must learn how to listen effectively. And then finally, we must follow up as well. Lori Nichols said this, I've been in the presence of people who shared their deepest hurts for the first time. I've watched as tears cascaded down their faces, knowing their untold story is no longer theirs alone. They have moved from the Western I into the biblical we. Okay. So, let's move to my second point. That's how we can respond. First point, responding to the cultural moment that we're in. But I don't want to leave yet. Go back to verse 23, if you would. And if you can think of this message, and really in many ways think of the Bible as a two-story house, okay? Think of it as a two-story house. It has a first floor and a second floor. In the second floor, we deal with the practical things of life. And what we've been doing on the second floor is urging you, if you have sexual sin in your life, we're urging you to address it and to surround yourself with friends who can help you. But there's also a first floor to this story. 
and it is foundational. And if we're going to repair the second story, we've got to understand the first floor, the first story. And that's why I just want to spend another few more minutes here completing this story. Otherwise, it will feel incomplete. Um, I'm not going to read what's here. I'm going to summarize what happens next. Two years goes by. Two years. Regarding what happened to Tamar, there is only silence. But Absalom has not stopped thinking about it. He's got a plan. And he calls his brothers to a sheep shearing party. How's that sound? Pretty exciting? Remember, these are ancient times, so this is, you know, this is, this is fun, I suppose. Actually, seriously, it was, some, it was a feast, a celebration, a way of bringing closure to this agricultural year, so to speak. And Absalom invites David out of courtesy, but he knows he will not come. The invitation is a ruse, and David suspects nothing. And at this party, Amnon tells his servants to ki- Absalom tells his servants to murder Amnon. He is going to avenge the rape of his sister, and his men indeed carry out the terrible deed. Now, all the rest of the brothers are there, too. And what are, what are they thinking? Again, put yourself back into the ancient world. Um, Amnon was the oldest son. He's dead. Absalom's the second son. He's alive. We're all rivals to the throne. So those guys flee. They head back to the palace. Somehow, we don't know why. This is a mystery. David gets word and finds out. And what he hears is that, All of his sons were killed, and he begins grieving. But soon that news is clarified, and he realizes it's only Amnon who is dead. But David, of course, is still devastated. One son is dead. The other son is estranged. The sword has hit his family, as God has said. The sword has hit his family. First rape, and now murder has been repeated through his sons. Amnon's love and what we often call love here is strange in heaven's ears. But there is also a love from heaven that is strange to earth, to our ears. After the high point in chapter 10, things are spinning out of control in David's life. As to his family, he is unwilling or unable to stop it or address it in any meaningful way. What is he to do? How does he view the father? How does the father view him? We see something of what is going on in David's heart and even a transformation of David's life in these next scenes. So, what happens is, There's more years that go by, and Absalom does not come home. Even though David is mourning for him, that there's some verses that are a little confusing here. Even though David is mourning for him, David will not see him. He will not bring him back. And so what Absalom does is he he gets Joab's attention. Joab is his neighbor, and he burns down Joab's field. Because two years have passed by and David will not see him. So he burns his neighbor's field to get his attention. And he tells Joab, tell David to either bring me in 
to see him and restore me or kill me. It's a bluff. It's a bluff. And Absalom believes that David will fall for it or capitulate to it. And indeed, that's exactly what David does. It's exactly what David does. He capitulates to the bluff and Absalom returns to Jerusalem. There's still no punishment for his crime. And to thank David for his grace, over a four-year period, Absalom steals the heart of the nation. He steals the heart of the majority of the nation, the majority of the people, away from his own father, David. Absalom gains a standing army, and literally, he drives his father out of the capital city, initiating a rebellion, and indeed, literally initiating a civil war against his father. The discipline of God has now reached its apex. David is on the move out of the city. Chapter 15, he's leaving the city. Absalom has taken over. And yet, even as he's moving, even as he is experiencing God's discipline, we see the grace of God continuing to work in his life. Many of his mighty men join him. Many remain loyal to him. There are a, it's, a minor, it's a minority, but there is a, it's a still a minority. There's attendants, there's servants, there's priests, there's the high priest, there's workers of the temple. They still see David as a man who has not given up on God. And there's one very revealing, touching story in this Exodus that gives us insight into David's life. Chapter 15, verse 24. And here I'm going to use a little bit of a different version, so it'll be different than your pew Bible. But this gives us a little cameo, a touching picture of what God is doing in David's life, even in this moment, even as he's experiencing discipline from God. We get something of what's going on in his heart. And we see the transformation in his life. Verse 24, Zadok, the high priest. So they're on Exodus. Zadok is the high priest who's with him, was there too. And all the Levites who were with him carrying the ark. Remember, the ark is the most sacred object, the most sacred relic. It's the most venerated uh, object within the uh, Judaic worship system. They set down the ark of God, and Abathar offered sacrifices until all the people, again, this is the group following him, till all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. You capture a little bit of his heart there? Do you remember the earlier story in chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 4 about the ark? Remember that story? Earlier when David had first brought the ark into Jerusalem in order to establish his kingdom, remember he regarded the ark so casually? 
had a very flippant attitude, almost like the, the ark was a lucky charm. Hey, the ark is my instant blessing machine. If we have the ark, God is on our side. Nothing can go wrong. Now here, the people bring the ark because they want to continue to worship. But now David views the ark differently. The ark is not some silver bullet. The ark is not some magic amulet. What is important now is his relationship to God and the way that he is relating to God. Notice how David's heart is in full yieldedness, full submission to God. God, hey, I'm ready if whatever you want to do to me, God. David's really been humbled by the judgment, by the discipline. God, whatever you want, you're good, God. God, you're good, and whatever you want, I'm ready for it. I don't need the ark to have your blessing. It's really up to you, God. It's really up to you. How can he say that? How can David here say that when he is about to lose everything? How can he have such open hands when he is about to lose everything that he has had and lived for and enjoyed for many years? Because even in the severest of disciplines, even in the most fierce discipline that God could spell out and give out and lash out, even in the fiercest of discipline, David has come to believe in three things. One, God fulfills his word. Two, God is just in his judgment. And three, he has not left me. The discipline means he's still invested in me. The discipline means he's still working with me. The discipline means he hasn't left me. He still loves me. If I didn't experience any consequences, if I didn't experience anything, it could indicate, one, that God doesn't care, two, God has forsaken me, or three, worse of all, God doesn't even exist. Yet in spite of the chaos, in spite of the trouble, in spite of the mourning, in all of this, David finds a surprising comfort, a strange love to earth, even in the discipline, even in the consequences. There was a reality that God would keep his word, and that word says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Take a look at this image, if you would. I love this image of shafts of light it says in Psalm 112 that for the, for, the, for the man that loves God, the man and woman that love God, that even when times are dark, even when things are troubled, even when there's despair and discouragement and tough times, it says, it says light will dawn on them. Light will break through. Light will burst forth. Light will dawn on that man or woman. And that's what David is experiencing. He's seeing shafts of light that are breaking through. 
and he finds comfort in them. You know, this is the faith. This is the faith of those, those who followed. This faith that David still must have manifested and still evidenced in his life. This was why people still followed him and why they remained loyal to him. And remember, they're leaving the civil war. So by identifying with Jesus, what's that mean? I mean, with David. By identifying with David, what does that mean? I mean, they were risking their lives. They were a small minority. It would have been much safer to stay with Absalom in the majority. So in light of that, look at this final verse, verse 30. Verse 30, we're going to end here, this verse. Because here in King David, we see the shadow of another king. We see the shadow of a greater king. A king that will not disappoint us. Verse 30, but David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Head covered, barefoot, these were signs of humiliation and mourning. David is crushed by the awareness of the punishment that his sins deserved. His heart is broken for himself, his family, and his nation. Who else walked up the Mount of Olives, also in humiliation, also in mourning, not for his own sins, but for the sins of the sins of you, and the sins of me, and for the sins of the world? Jesus Himself retraced these same steps, and He walked up the Mount of Olives. David suffered because of his own sins. Jesus suffered for our sins, including our sexual sins, including the sins hidden within the spaces of our own family, including the sins that bring us so much shame we can barely talk about them. Jesus died a horrible penalty for those sins. And that forgiveness is there Rich talked about last week, that forgiveness is there for those who hear his call and follow Jesus. This small minority followed David even though he was despised and rejected. Jesus today is also despised and rejected. Those who follow him today are in the minority. But when we follow him, when we remain loyal to him, you too will experience a kind of strange love that nothing on this earth can come close to identifying. You will experience a strange love, a radical forgiveness that you never thought could have ever happened. You'll experience an awareness like David did that we are far worse than we think we are, you and me. We are all far worse than we think we are, every one of us. We are far worse than we think we are. You are also more loved than you think you are.
And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that's what David, that's what the greatest king, Jesus, pictures is pictured here. Let's pray. Father, we covered so much ground today. And I pray that where there needs to be healing, that you bring healing. God, where there needs to be forgiveness, you'd bring forgiveness. Father, where there needs to be openness and transparency and, 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 and bringing our sins to others, that you would give us the courage and the grace and the power to do that today. Father, that we could fully experience the blessing, the forgiveness, the grace, the love of being transparent before you and before others. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit to help us not only grasp this kind of love, but also to receive it, to believe in it, and to walk in it, changing our identity into sons and daughters. Father, for that person this morning to whom sexual sin has kept them from entering into the kingdom of God, I pray for that person this morning that you would break through their thinking, you would break through their understanding and help them even today to take a step towards you into your kingdom, a kingdom of love, a kingdom of forgiveness, and to begin addressing what has hurt them and what has hindered them Father, for the person this morning who has a story, a hard story to tell, a difficult story to tell, Father, give them the courage to tell those stories, to tell that story. And Father, give us the grace as a church community to listen, to be engaged, to serve, to wash feet, to follow up to love. May the church, may this church be a community where people find healing from sexual sins that they've committed and from sexual sins that they've experienced from others. May this be a place of healing, God. A place of healing. Continue to lead us, Father, as we sing as we give back to you, as we raise our hands and worship as we pray. Father, continue to speak. Just to remind you that as your eyes are closed, when the service is done, members of our prayer team will be here. We encourage you, we urge you to come forward for prayer. Come forward. Take a step this morning in receiving the healing that God wants to give to you.